it's like being in the middle of a mass shooting, but you know, it doesn't end within an hour, it, it goes on for 12 days. Government buildings shelled, oil depots hit, a TV tower struck, and schools razed to the ground. This is the first social media war. Twitter sometimes beats the official channels in terms of explosions. Like literally 15 seconds later, there'll be a tweet about it. A minute later, you'd have a full HD picture of it. Previous conflicts, people wouldn't know for years what happened. We try and kind of use it as a tool and as a weapon to, to save ourselves and our country. The Kremlin's response has been to plunge ever deeper into tyranny. I sat my wife down and said, like, look, could be trouble. She kind of looked me in the eye and said, like, this guy wants us dead, Ukrainians. We can run away, but where are we going to run to? I mean, are we going to run to Poland? I mean, he'll be knocking on the door there, like, within a few years if you keep rainfall. You go and fight. Do whatever you do best. You know how to work with the media, work with the media. You did your army training, you know how to shoot with a gun, go shoot some Russians, but defend us. It gives you certain freedom to do what's right. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got Igor Novikov. Igor, thanks for doing this. You've been on a lot of different news stations here in America, uh, advisor to president of Ukraine. The West knew what was going to happen. The West had a uh, high probability understanding of what was happening. If the evil is chasing you, I mean, uh, running away is not going to make anything better. The violence and the barbarity that we're seeing you know, has no place in the 21st century. Can you maybe give people just the tiniest bit of your background? And then we got a ton of Ukraine questions. Right. Okay. The, the key word there is tiniest. Okay. Well, um, I was born in Donetsk, which is Eastern Ukraine. So um, what's happening in Kiev now and all over Ukraine, I've actually lived through already once uh, eight years ago. So, you know, Donetsk was one of the first cities occupied by Russia. And this is where this whole thing started, like in 2014. Um, I went to school in Britain. I went to this little boarding school called Uppingham School in the middle of nowhere in Leicestershire. So it was literally like a boarding school and like 20, 20 mile radius of sheep and green grass. And that's it. Uh, then I went to the LSE, London School of Economics. Um, so in, in, enjoyed it a lot after kind of living in the middle of nowhere for five years. Um, then I had two years working in Moscow for a German insurance company. And then I moved back to Kiev. So, you know, um, life has taken me to many different places. My background originally is twofold. So uh, I've got a law degree, although I've never practiced law. And also I've got a filmmaking degree, which actually helps more than my law degree at the moment. Um, yeah, so um, I'm I run a local chapter in Ukraine of an international think tank called Singularity University out of Silicon Valley. It's su.org if you want to check it out. Um, that's how I met President Zelensky because, you know, my think tank uh, job kind of got me speaking in front of large crowds quite a lot. So I became somewhat of a celebrity in Ukraine. And, you know, when Volodymyr Zelensky was thinking about running for president, his team reached out to me asked me to do like a one day intro program kind of explaining what's going to happen in the world in the next five years because of technology, because of, you know, innovation, disruption, you know, that, that kind of thing. And we kind of hit it off. So um, I was originally supposed to be advising him on innovation, but because of certain antics of a certain Rudy Giuliani, I had to, you know, switch my job description to US Ukraine. And I, 
I was the go-to guy handling the containing, I would say, the fallout from the impeachment, the the first Trump impeachment. Um, and that's my story. Now I'm kind of back helping them, you know, with the international media and with the US and with whatever I can do for them and for my country. So that's like, that's the gist of it. Yeah. Well, I I've been fascinated with Singularity University for years. If we have time, I would really love to hear more about that part of your life here sure. before we finish today, or maybe do another episode sometime. It, it is fascinating. And for people who don't know, can you tell people just a tiny bit about the founders of Singularity? Because it's those people are impressive. It's 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 a very interesting institution. So we have two main founders who are Peter Diamandis, who's literally the guy be behind like private space travel. You know, you know, that's to kind of to put it lightly. Um, he was the guy who uh, introduced the world to a foundation called XPRIZE. And they ran a lot of interesting competitions, including, you know, the private space flight, which became uh, later became known as Virgin Galactic. Uh, and the second founder is Ray Kurzweil. I mean, I, I think that guy doesn't need any introduction, you know. He's one of the best futurists in the world. You know, he's an inventor, um, amazing thinker. And, you know, the guy, every single time I kind of, I get to meet him, it's, it's the guy you want to ask at least one question. So, you, you, you know, that, that, that kind of approach. So literally, if you have like the source of infinite, infinite knowledge, like sitting in front of you, and it's the most difficult thing in the world. So when you're facing Ray Kurzweil, it's just like, and you get one question, you kind of think, what should I ask him? Yeah, I, I've asked him lots of stupid questions so far. So you well, know, hopefully I'll get another chance. Next time you see him, ask him a question for me. Because sure. I, I have a copy of The Singularity is Near, and that is a thick book. But I never read books. I listen to like two or three audiobooks a week, and I read like one book a year. Yeah. So if he could just please get it on audio, it would be like personal favor. <laughs> sure. uh, Sure. And, and 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 that's ironic from the guy who uh, invented speech, speech recognition. That's speech synthesis. So you know, yeah, yeah uh, I'll I'll ask him. I'll ask him. But that book is amazing, and so are his other books. And apparently, damn it, I mean the the war kind of disrupted me in a major way because uh, his new book is coming out. Uh, Singularity is nearer. And it must be out now. I mean, like, look, I got preoccupied fighting the Russians. So I better go on Amazon. I, I do want to. I do want to bring this up. That just before we hit record, Igor said, "Well, let's go for like thirty or forty minutes, unless bombs start going off, and then let's cut yeah. it." That's first. Oh, first for me. Look, look. I mean, that's that's how I describe things. I mean, literally for us, it was like twenty third of February. Uh, yeah. I, got another warning i have friends in the u.s uh within the intelligence community so like on a friendly kind of level they they told me uh you know this thing was serious like back in november october last year but look it's so unbelievable i mean the scale and the sheer you know ferocity of this conflict is so so hard to believe that 23rd of february i got another warning that like literally you know it's a matter of hours now so i went got myself a haircut um you know filled up the uh cars and that was it so i i literally just went home and you know you kind of know it's gonna happen but you don't believe it so i went to sleep and then i woke up to the sound of like cruise missiles exploding like 10, 10 kilometers away from my house and kind of to get you an idea of what it's like i have two analogies one is the one i've been pushing on all the during all the interviews one is like you know playing a video game about like the second world war or you know any 
military conflict, like Call of Duty or Counter-Strike or something like that. And literally going to sleep and then waking up in it. So, you know, that's kind of one way of putting it. But, you know, there's a scary way I kind of have, I've come up with it, like literally today. I, I was thinking, what does, you know, this constant sense of like a, an imminent threat and insecurity remind me of? And it's just like, it's like being in the middle of a mass shooting, but, you know, it doesn't end within an hour. It, you know, it goes on for 12 days. And, you know, that emotional kind of roller coaster that you're going through, you know, as you live day by day through it is, you know, it's something really difficult to kind of to to explain. So I think, you know, once this whole thing is over, I mean, uh, I'm definitely going on holiday. I mean, <laughs> you know, the beach is one thing I'm dreaming of at the moment. Uh, and then I, I think once kind of the dust settles, I'll, I'll, I'll try and find that, find a way to share that experience because I think it might be useful to people. It's an, such an interesting thing to be an outside observer, but to also feel so much more a part of this conflict because your people have been so great at showing what's actually happening instead of what the propaganda machine out of Moscow is saying is happening. Well, that, this is the first uh, social media war, like a major social media war, because like, look, a lot of people haven't noticed it. And I was lucky enough to kind of to, to live with the understanding of what's going on like globally because of singularity university like for the, for the last like what, six years that i've been a part of it uh the world has changed with the invention of the internet i mean the way we access information the quality the quantity and the frequency of that information flying at us uh has changed reality a lot it's changed the very fabric of how we think of how we do things and how we kind of perceive information so uh this war yes i mean it's the multimedia and social media war so you know whatever happens i mean it's it's unbelievable i've been, since you know had a lot to do with what i used to do for the president's office like back in the day um i kind of i've got a very complex system set up to monitor the uh, social media and basically like look i mean twitter sometimes beats the official channels in terms of explosions so literally because i'm in kiev you, you'd hear an explosion and like literally 15 seconds later there'll be a tweet about it and then like you know a minute later you'd have a full hd picture of it a, with, a, with with like a proper description of what happened who's to blame and you know what's going to happen in the next 10 minutes and that's just unbelievable because like if you think about like previous conflicts like for example iraq or afghanistan or even like you know vietnam war the second world war i mean like people wouldn't know for years what happened so you know that that'd be a city you know level to the ground and you know nobody would know about it now every single that every single grain of drama that that is part of war is with you constantly and that that's really weird and i'm really happy that you know we've been blessed with you know a society in ukraine that kind of that is familiar with how technology works uh with how to deal with information so we we kind of we we, we try and kind of use it as a tool and as a weapon to to save ourselves and our country well congrats on doing such a good job so far obviously uh okay. There's a lot of uncertainty about the future, but uh, congrats on taking it to the enemy, man. Well, look, we're, we're fighting what used to be a superpower. Although, I mean, if you look at the way they fight, I mean, you, you might have second thoughts. But like, um, you know, given the sheer amount of like people on the ground and hardware that they have 
within that territory. I mean, uh, if it weren't for social media, if it weren't for like the global attention, I mean, we'd, we'd be struggling. I mean, like seriously, we're going to survive as long as people talk about it. So whenever, you know, there's a Justin Bieber scandal happening or, you know, something major happens in the world and people kind of switch their attention to something else, then we're in trouble. You know, I, I've been watching you on a number of stations and I wanted to get you on the show because I feel like you, you only get these short snippets on, on the news. And I feel like there's more that, that, uh, the rest of us should be learning and, and helping motivate us to help and to donate to you guys. Let's cover just a couple of quick things. Can you tell us about the conversation with your wife? About the, 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 the very first one that we had. Yeah. Well, we've had some really interesting conversations. So the first one was weird. That was when I got my first warning of, you know, something might happen this winter. So get your family out if you can. Uh, that was back in, I think, November 2021. So I kind of set her down and I told her the first conversation, she just didn't believe me. I mean, like, it's like saying the Martians will arrive tomorrow, you know, they have a intent. So, you know, it's just weird. So she just laughed me off and said, like, okay, you know, you and your friends, you know, from, from the intelligence community, come on, come on, come up with something, you know, more believable. Uh, then we had a second conversation, I think a few weeks later when, you know, when the press kind of started catching up with it, you know, when the Washington Post article came out. So I told her, like, look, I mean, that's the second time we're seeing, you know, a buildup of troops on our borders. And, you know, Putin is slightly unhinged. So, you know, anything can happen. And she said, no, 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 no. Like, look, um, we'll, you know, the, the most you can hope for is we'll, we'll talk about it closer to the imminent threat. Uh, and the final conversation that I keep mentioning during my interviews, we actually had like, I think a month ago, something like that. So when it was pretty be believable that something will happen, although like nobody believed they were going to attack Kiev, because I mean, it's just so out there and that, you know, even people with knowledge would deny it. Um, so I sat my wife down and said like, look, I mean, could be trouble. And yeah, she, she, <laughs> that's Ukrainian women for, for you. She, she kind of looked me in the eye and said like, Listen, um, this guy wants us dead, Ukrainians, or in harm's way. We can run away, you know, but where are we going to run to? I mean, are we going to run to Poland? I mean, he'll be knocking on the door there, like, within a few years if, you, if Ukraine falls. Um, the U.S., well, you know, the guy's unhinged. There could be World War III nuclear weapons. They're not going to run away there either. The Maldives, well, it's global warming, you know, so, you know, the ocean level is rising. So, you know, we might as well get a canoe if we move to the Maldives. So, but all jokes aside, she just said, like, look, um, the best way to make a stand is to do it at home. Um, even the walls help. And she said, like, look, I'll take care of the kids. I'll take care of all, like, the uh, basic chores and necessities so you don't have to worry about it. And you go and fight. Do whatever you do best. So, like... You know how to work with the media, work with the media. You know, you, you know how to fight disinformation, fight disinformation. You, you know, you want to play some dark arts in terms of disinformation, do that too. You know, uh, you did your army training, you know how to shoot a gun, go shoot some Russians, but defend us. We're your family, we're going to cover, you know, we're going to have you six, but, you, you know, the rest is up to you. And yeah, it's, it's like, look, it, it, it gives you certain freedom to do what's right, because uh, if... If, if you're hesitant, it's mostly because, you know, you have people depending on you. When the people depending on you actually give you a 
get out of jail free card in terms of like, you know, do whatever needs to be done, but, you know, make sure this house is intact, you know, this family is safe and everyone's okay. Like, look, gives you wings. It gives you that extra 10% strength. It's like the joke we have in Ukraine, like, you know, any, any, any BMW, regardless of the engine, if it has an M logo on it, I mean, it's got extra 20 horsepower. So, you know, it's a bit like that. Wow. What a credit to your wife, man. What, what a, what a great inspiring response. Yeah, I know. I know. I, I kind of, I'm still in awe of that decision because uh, some people left, but you know, I absolutely don't blame them because uh, you know, it's it's a question of you know, self kind of self understanding and you know, certain degree of certainty in 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 how you can cope with it because like we worried about the kids the most uh and you know and that was one of the driving factors that we even considered um but you know my wife kind of assured me that like look um it's it's a brand new world and it might be a violent and turbulent place for a few years still so you know it's better to show the kids the real world i mean we we have what it takes to protect them from everything so you know but they need to see everything firsthand there's no need to kind of keep them in the cocoon because it's it's not going to help them adapt to what's coming next in the world so so yeah i mean like look we we've adapted ourselves to the sound of cruise missiles landing our kids have adapted themselves themselves to to the sound of cruise missiles landing and now we have one final task to do. Now we need to adapt ourselves to the fact that our kids adapted to the sound of cruise missiles landing. And that's the most difficult part because no parent needs to uh, kind of get himself or herself used to the fact that their kids don't kind of uh, twitch at the sound of a rocket exploding. Yeah. It's wild. It, it is. It's like, it's absolutely surreal. I mean, like, look, for me, it's very important to explain to the Western audience that, like, look, I mean, I've grown up watching, you know, a couple of wars on TV. So, you know, I remember both Iraq wars, I kind of I remember Afghanistan. But look, it's all different because, I mean, um, all wars are bad. But, like, this is the first time I'm not only living through it, I'm actually seeing a major war happen in a place that's so reminiscent of like, you know, LA or New York or Dubai or Paris. I mean, like, definitely we're, we're nothing like Kabul, we're nothing like Baghdad, right? We, this is just like Europe, you know, it's a place that gives you that full sense of security. So, you, you know, whenever, whenever you're like, I don't know, drinking Greek coffee in Athens or, you know, watching, looking at the... Colosseum in Rome or, you know, walking down Champs-Élysées in Paris. I mean, the last thing you think about is that in that, at this very place, you know, in a few days, there could be rockets landing and, you know, bullets flying. And it's like witnessing that, I mean, it's been 12 days. I mean, for, for 12 straight days, I go to sleep and wake up to the sound of explosions. You know, I live with that constant kind of feeling that, you know, we can have Russians kind of shooting at the front door like tomorrow. Um, at the same time, I, I still didn't get used to it to not, not kind of not understanding the fact, but to, to comprehending it. I mean, that, that's the most difficult part because it's like every single time you go to sleep, you go like, no, 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 it's just a bad dream. I'm going to wake up and, you know, there's an espresso waiting for me at the coffee shop next door. And you kind of, you wake up, nope, nope, we're still in that hell. So, and it gets worse by the day as well. You know, I know that a lot of 
reporters and people have been trying to get you to break operational security and say like, are you Zooming with the president? What are your calls? <laughs> How do you describe the communications that you do have while keeping OPSEC? Uh, we're trying to fool the Russians. We use Tinder mostly. <laughs> no, okay. of course, I'm not going to tell you how we do it. I mean, uh, no, no. like we, we use intermediaries, we use secure channels, you know, um, that's as far as I can go. I mean, yeah. like, um, look, people need to understand that certain things, I mean, the world has changed. Uh, one of the uh, stories I was actually telling during my keynotes before the war was the saddest story about uh, the terrible effects of a digital footprint in Kabul. So like literally when the Taliban was kind of literally like running over Kabul and it happened like in literally 24 hours, you know, people didn't have the time to delete their Facebook accounts and like their messaging history and everything. And lots of civilian lives were lost because of that. Because somebody was saying like, screw Taliban, and then they forgot to delete the message and there they are. So like data and, you know, technology and information that we have extends beyond, you know, illegal MP3s and Netflix and, you know, and whatnot, right? So it, it actually has physical kind of qualities that directly affect your security. So I'm, I'm not going to tell you where I am. I, all I can tell you is I'm in Kiev. And I actually can to, to, to get people to actually believe that I actually, I've, I've taken a few photos today to, to just kind of say hi in, 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 in you know, in, in places um in central kiev but um yeah i'm in kiev uh i'm not gonna go further into detail yeah. because like look no, especially no. Pe people exposed publicly so people who do interviews people who are close to zelensky were most at risk and our families are at risk because uh although i mean like everyone's at risk one of the scariest things that i've heard today from you know a few of my colleagues was the fact that we've actually during inter interrogations of Russian prisoners, you know, the captured Russian soldiers, they've uh, concurred with the information we already had that Russian army has been given explicit orders to shoot at civilians. So they're not discouraged, they're actually encouraged to do that. Uh, and we saw it happen in Irpin, northwest of Kiev, like literally yesterday when, you know, people were fleeing, civilians were fleeing and they were shooting mortars at the backs of front armed civilians and killed the entire family with kids and everything. It actually turned out that, you know, a friend of mine knew the woman who was killed with her family. So, uh, by the way, that's another weird observation and, you know, really tragic and scary observation that I made. Like, you know, you have your Facebook friends and, you know, because of like my keynotes and everything, I never, I was never like social media active in terms of like subscribers or whatnot, right? But, um, you know, I have, nearly 5,000 friends. I keep deleting to make sure I can add new ones uh, and about 7,000 subscribers. But at the same time, like when you have 5,000 friends, yes, there's a likelihood there'd be some people killed in a major conflict out of your friend list. But when it's like over 20 people, over 12 days out of 5,000 random people that you have, that kind of gives you a sense of like, you don't need to be a data scientist to kind of to realize that the scale of tragedy and human loss that's already happened in Ukraine is slowly getting uncovered, but it's only going to be uncovered once this is all over. And I think it's going to shock people because it's way above what's being publicly confirmed and said on TV, unfortunately. Yeah, so it's a, it was the same with COVID, by the way. It's just like, you know, people saying, like, you know, COVID doesn't exist. And, you know, 
oh no 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 only a few people like you know he's got COVID one of out of 5,000 people and you know my friends list had COVID and then suddenly everyone had COVID then we started seeing people dying in my friends list it's very similar to that but the much larger scale you know um it is it's genuinely inspiring what you guys and your president have done to galvanize the rest of the world of standing up to a bully doing the hard right thing instead of an easy wrong thing you know like uh it, it's like a genuine service you've done to all the rest of us to set the example of what it looks like to stand up to evil i'm interested when you think about all the things that are getting said about president Zelensky, what do you think people don't realize like I, i'm sure it's different being there when you actually know him when it's not you know like in some ways he's, he's almost seems like an action figure because he's like he's like a movie star action star you know what I mean? Like okay, yeah, yeah. a man, right? But you actually <laughs> oh, know him. This is a real person. Yeah. This is, I mean, I can just tell how inspiring he is to you personally. Can you can you talk to us about that? Uh yeah, well, he is a very inspiring, very courageous man. But you know, since I kind of I know him a bit more than other people, I, I can tell you there are two elements uh to this kind of perception, you know, to the public perception of him now. Um First of all, uh, he's just an ordinary guy. And, you know, people in this world, you know, full of, you know, Instagram filters and, you know, fake uh, everything, like fake faces, fake bodies and, you know, fast fashion, um, you know, special effects in movies, uh, deep fakes, whatever. <laughs> people are so used to everything being fake. Uh, they actually enjoy the scarcity of that sincerity when they when they come across it so um you, you know put anyone who's not a politician in this place put anyone who's just a genuinely nice guy from the street in this place and you'd have another Zelensky you know it's just a question of context and circumstances so that's one element of like you know of the legend that he is the second element is the fact that you know this guy is a collective portrait of for Ukrainian people as a whole, as a collective. I mean, like, look, there are so many stories of bravery and courage and, you know, defiance in Ukraine at the moment that, you know, he's just the one getting, you know, the 10 minutes of the spotlight. But like, literally, like, look, we, a couple of stories, like from my own experience, we're standing in the queue. I mean, the, for the first couple of days, there was shortage of everything in trips and people were unprepared. So like literally to get milk or to get bread, you know, you had to queue up and be lucky. So we got a phone call that one of the local stores in our area was receiving a shipment of milk. So we queued up and we're standing there and we literally like have um, a lot of milk. Yeah, but by kind of stocking up. Uh, and there's a guy standing behind us and he goes like, and he's only got like one carton of milk there. And he goes, uh, guys, could you, could you sell me some of the milk you're buying? Because I've got three kids under the age of three and they need a lot of milk. And we went, yeah, sure. I mean, like, look, everyone's helping everyone. And then, and then he says the cutest thing. He goes like, do you have kids? And we go like, yeah, we, we have a two and a half year old and a 13 year old. And he goes, do you by any chance have any pampers? you know or huggies or something because you know three under three they do tend to pee a lot and we actually we just bought it trained at two and a half year old so you know she didn't need you know the, the pile that we had so we had them drive to our house we gave it for free to him and then it turned out that he's a surgeon living next door 
So, you know, at the time of war, knowing a surgeon actually helps. And, you know, it's those people, you know, mom moments of like pure good that are happening are worth all the evil that's happening, if you know what I mean. And, you know, also the stories of bravery. I mean, we, we have soldiers who kind of, who blow themselves up to save like 50 comrades. Uh, and that's, that's a normal occurrence. So that, that kind of heroic attitude seems strange to the outside world. They only saw it in the movies, but we kind of, we see it every day. And that makes us who we are. So, you know, in a country where you have people like that, you just can't be a bad guy. I mean, it's impossible. All the bad guys fled to Russia. So. You know, <laughs> uh, one of the other things, like, I, I'm so inspired by the regular Ukrainian women that keep getting on the news. Like, I knew Ukrainians are tough. I grew up in near Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, where for people who don't know, Canada is like one of the largest Ukrainian populations yeah, I know, in the I world, know. right? And so, like, I grew up on, like, uh, pierogies and kubasa, and you know, like we thought, yeah. right? And so I, I knew Ukrainians were tough, anyways. But like, I love when these reporters are like trying to get women to feel sorry for themselves, and your fellow country women are like, "No, are you kidding? We're we're going to take it to this guy. Like, we're not going to lay down." Uh, just inspiring, man. Well, 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 they are like that. It's just like, and those like little nuances, little like elements to the whole picture are incredible. For example, my wife was like, I, I was, I got myself a Kalashnikov. It's really easy to get a Kalashnikov in Kiev now. Um, and there's no armed violence between Ukrainians. That's the most interesting and inspiring fact, because like, you know, they haven't legalized weapons in Ukraine, like properly with a few exceptions of like, you know, special weaponry for hunters, uh, for ages, you know, citing the fact that, you know, you, you know, if we legalize weapons now, Ukraine's not the richest country. I mean, we're going to see an uptick in gun violence. None of that happened. Everyone's got a Kalashnikov now and everyone's really chilled about it. Uh, but I, I got myself a Kalashnikov from the government and I tried teaching my wife how to use it. And that her response was just unbelievable. You know, as a wife and as a woman, and my wife is interesting because she used to be a commercial director in charge of merchandising for a female movement called Femin. You know, if you've ever heard of them, you know, those were the women who um, who showed breasts to Putin, and I got oh, them really okay. pissed off. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Anyway, I, I tried teaching her how to use a Kalashnikov, and she goes, um, "I'm not going to learn." I was just like, "Why?" Because it's not my job. You're the man. You know, you should. I mean, are you really going to lose a gunfight and, you know, endanger your family um, in, such a, in such a tragic way that I need to know how to shoot a Kalashnikov? It's just like, oh, okay, fair enough. You know, I'm just going to be John Rambo. Um, but then she did the funny thing. And then, and then she, like, literally 10 minutes later, I caught her actually watching a tutorial on YouTube how to shoot a Kalashnikov. So, you know, <laughs> there's so many levels to that gender kind of conversation happening. It's something. Wow. Well, listen, uh, you've got more important things to do than talk to me. What do you want to leave people with? What, what, haven't, uh, what haven't you been asked that you wish reporters were asking? Um, nobody's asking what's next because, you know, what blows my mind, especially like, you know, I keep criticizing the Western business for doing, you know, for earning money and paying taxes in Russia. Like, like there is a tomorrow to, to this old world that we still live in. I mean, the world's going to change a lot, uh, not only geopolitically because of this. There's no coming back to what how things used to be. So COVID plus this war, I think that's going to flip everything upside down. Um, and like, look, 
we have two futures ahead of us. Uh, one is the future of, you know, really scary perspectives and scary kind of outcomes. So, you know, very anti-utopian, um, you know, it's still not fully predetermined what that future is going to look like, whether it's going to be more of a Mad Max kind of scenario or, you know, the day after tomorrow, or I don't know, whatever, don't look up, you know, the recent classic from, from Netflix, but I, you know, there's an anti-utopian future and there's actually a decent future of abundance. I mean, like people don't realize that we've invented and scaled a lot of technology that can make our lives truly better. I mean, we can live longer, we can explore Mars, you know, we can go to the moon. Uh, I know it sounds corny, but it's true. Uh, we can cure disease. We can make sure everyone's got enough for everyone. So like literally any like global challenge that we have is solvable. Um, but in order to do that, we need to upgrade ourselves and the way we, we see things and the way our minds work. Because we still live in that scarcity model of, you know, if I don't have enough, instead of playing it a non-zero sum way and, you know, collaborating to create more, I'll pick up a stick, go knock my neighbor on the head, over the head with it and, you know, take his stuff. That needs to end because with the tech that we have at our disposal, we have enough power to create the, a bright future or to destroy civilization as we know. And it's being decided right now. So, you know, kind of do, do, do with it whatever you please. But the best way to kind of to, to, to forecast the future is to actually create. Yeah. Listen, a lot of people listening today are probably going to want to donate. And, uh, you know, they hear about bravery of you, your wife, your countrymen. In, in your opinion, what, what's the best thing to donate to? What, what do you feel like could use the money I, the most? I, I would say pay attention to... Um, First of all, the funds that you donate to. So, I mean, the president's office in Ukraine and our government is updating the information of the trusted funds and, you know, the verified funds, uh, funds because there are plenty of scammers out there. And the last thing I want is for people to make money of this. Uh, secondly, in terms of what we need the money for, at the moment, we need the money for humanitarian needs. Uh, so... Obviously, we have a huge number of refugees leaving Ukraine. You know, the situation on the ground is difficult. Just imagine your life like being disrupted overnight. So you, you no longer have a job or savings or anything. You know, if you're lucky to have roof over your head until a Russian bomb lands there. So, you know, obviously, it takes a lot of money to kind of to get those people back to, to that comfortable daily life. Uh, and later, we'll need a lot of money to rebuild Ukraine because it seems that one of Russia's main objectives is to destroy everything we have. Our airports, our roads, our shops, you know, our parks, our monuments, our cinemas, like you name it. And it would take a lot of money to get all of that back. And unfortunately, I mean, I kind of, I know the way the world works too, too, too well to kind of to understand that once this is over, there, there'll be a short period of glory and celebration and then everyone's going to turn away and go, go kind of about their own business. And so we need the money kind of to rebuild before that happens. Actually, I can prove, prove this point. Uh, let's, let's play a little game. Can you name at least one astronaut from the Apollo 11 mission? The first mission to land on the moon. Can, I, can you name one? Uh, well, John Glenn and Buzz Aldrin, I guess. Yeah, well, there you go. I'm surprised you didn't name Neil Armstrong, but sure. <laughs> fair, fair enough. 
can you name anyone from Apollo 12 that flew a few months late? See my point? Yeah. Uh, I don't want Ukraine to be Apollo 12. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, do you know the website that people can check to make sure that what they're giving to is actually going to get the I, money to you? Look, I'm I'm dyslexic with a terrible memory. No, that's so okay. I'm, 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 I'm gonna look. At, I'm gonna look it up now. The, the, okay. one way the office sent to me by Zelensky's team, and I'll forward it to you. Okay. And feel free to kind of publish. But it's it essentially on. the office of the president. Like if people are googling, office of the president of the Ukraine. Yeah, president.gov.ua. I mean, they okay. must have something up there. If if they don't, I'll uh, I'll make sure they do. Um. Actually, no, if, if you just give me a second and keep talking, I'll, I'll give you the web address really quickly. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, tell, tell a story. Tell a story. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell you this story. Oh, oh. I've done like 700 episodes of this, and this is like, this is in the top two most important interviews I've ever done. The only one that I would, that even comes close was uh, recently I had a, a young woman who escaped the Taliban who kept not letting her and these 150 girls get to the airport and things got really crazy and they were threatening to kill her if she was like taking pictures or calling anyone and she did it anyways and saved these 150 girls, you know? And yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one story back then, the website address. Um, we had this really basic story go over the news like two days ago and I didn't believe it at first. I thought it was fake news. Um, picture this, there's a residential building outskirts of Kiev, like literally like 20 story or something like that, like Soviet style, like typical. Uh, there's a woman smoking on her balcony in the middle of the night. It's like 4 a.m. She hears buzzing. You know, turns out to be it's a drone. It's a reconnaissance drone by, used by the Russian saboteurs. The woman freaks out because she thinks it can shoot at her or something like that. And, you know, she's never seen like a DJI or something, DJI before. So she picks up this jar of pickled tomatoes and plums, throws it at the drone, knocks it out of the sky, then runs out of the apartment. She steps on it and destroys the drone. It was all over the news that although people reported it was gherkins, no, it was tomatoes and plums. Um, but it's actually true. And you don't defeat a country like that, you know. <laughs> if sophisticated like reconnaissance drones would be kicked out of the sky with with it marinated tomatoes. Uh, yeah, the website I got sent by one of Zelensky's advisors called Andrew Mack uh, is how dash to dash help dash Ukraine dash now dot super dot site. Listen, it's truly inspirational. We're all praying for you. We're we're going to send money your way and try to get more money you sent your way keep the faith man and pay attention to us otherwise we're doomed <laughs> thank you for having me